So the British have a way of saying things that leaves you wondering if they're judging you or complimenting you, and sometimes that's absolutely on purpose. An example might be, "You look great. Have you lost weight?" Or a British person might say, "That's a very brave proposal," but what they actually mean is, "You're crazy for suggesting that." In America, we're more direct about our way of speaking, but in Britain. They've had hundreds of years worth of training and manners, and so there's a cultural legacy、uh, of at least appearing polite, even if the underlying thoughts are not very polite. So there's a British man who came to New York、uh, to visit some friends and went out to eat at a restaurant, and the waiter asked how everyone's first course was doing, and the British man said the soup could be a little hotter. To which the New York waiter looked at him blankly, and walked away. And his American friends laughed and laughed, and they explained that in New York one must be blunt. So the British man called the waiter back and asked for the soup to be heated up. Jesus is a study in subtlety in the parables. At times, the very villains of a story that he's telling are sitting in the front row, listening to him. Yet here in Matthew 13, he reveals to his disciples what he speaks in subtlety to the crowds. We'll be studying Jesus' explanation of the parables in order to give us a framework of how to interpret parables going forward. So, if you lean in close, if you bring your questions to Jesus when you're not sure, Jesus will make visible the invisible. Jesus will make visible the invisible. You have questions. Jesus has answers. But you must come to Him in order for those secret things to be revealed. If you try to figure out life, Christianity, the Bible on your own, you will be left muddled in a fog. But as you look to Jesus to interpret Jesus, you will finally begin to understand Jesus and understand yourself and your role here on this earth. The number one rule. That has helped me to understand and apply the parables is this: Jesus is speaking about Himself and pointing to Himself. Among humans, this is conceited, thinking too highly of oneself. But Jesus is the Most High. How could He think too highly of Himself? And He wants to give you the best. He is the best, and so He gives you Himself. So the application for us is to glorify Jesus in response to his parables. The main application of all parables is to give praise and honor to the Son of Man, the harbinger of the kingdom of God, Jesus. Jesus reveals himself in parables, so praise him. Look at verse thirty-seven: "The one who sows the seed is the Son of Man." Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is telling a story about himself. And his work and his ownership, and, and the Son of Man is a title from the Book of Daniel, where the Ancient of Days gave all authority, all authority in heaven and on earth, to one like a Son of Man. Jesus' self-referential epithet, Son of Man, is itself a veiled reference to who he is. It sounds humble. I was born of a woman. Okay, what's the big deal? But in the end, because it's the one to whom the Ancient of Days gives all authority to, there's no higher honor that one can bestow. Jesus reveals that He is the one who owns the field, owns all the earth, 
Jesus reveals that he is the one who spreads the word about life. More specifically, spreads his followers, right, throughout the world. For he says in verse 38, the field is the world, the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. So just to clarify, each parable is connected, but it also must be taken on its own. The seed was the word in the, the parable just before this, but the seed is the sons of the kingdom in this parable. So the metaphors are not the same throughout. Jesus reveals that he is the one who sends angels to judge the earth on the final day. He is a God of grace and a fire of fury. This should cause us to fall before him in worship. See, these stories are so unlike other stories. These stories reveal the greatness of the author. The author is a character in the story. And as the disciples realized who they were speaking to, they should have fallen on their faces in worship. And that's the application for you today. Regardless of what the rest of this, that, and the other of the parables means, Jesus is Lord. He is the heavenly king. He is commander of angel armies. No half-hearted response to this will do. Praise him with all your might. Give allegiance to him with all your heart. Glorify him with your whole body. This is the only correct response when you realize that the one speaking is the one who created all things and will end all things. Jesus reveals the growth of God's kingdom, so have hope. Look at verses 31 and 32. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. So the birds of the air come and make nests in it, in its branches. Have you ever seen a mustard seed? It's, it's pretty small. I get whole seed mustard from Trader Joe's so that I can wear the seeds between my teeth. <laughs> but, but, but compare how small that seed is to an entire field. But mustard grows like crazy. It grows so fast and so healthy that it has come to be one of the top outlawed plants in history. In the St. Louis Botanical Gardens, they display mustard bushes in cages to enlighten people that these bushes are viral. So don't get caught up in whether or not the mustard bush is a tree. Don't worry that they're technically smaller seeds. Jesus' point stands. What's his point? That his kingdom grows, grows wild, can't be stopped by cages or laws. And this parable served to give his listeners hope. Years later, his disciples would remember Jesus' teaching in the midst of Judaic persecution, Roman persecution. After a life of missionary journeys, Paul would look back and finally understand what Jesus was talking about. The gospel spreads like a weed. Hallelujah! It spreads all over Judea, Samaria, into India and Ethiopia in a generation. Throughout the Mediterranean in 30 years. Such gospel growth isn't merely in the past. Such gospel growth is perennial. So be filled with hope. Nothing can stop the spread of the gospel. Not prisons, not dictates, not persecutions. Sometimes such only serve to spread the gospel faster and with purer witness. Be encouraged. God's kingdom is growing in spite of the terrible devastations of COVID. Some of the churches most mistreated in California are thriving numerically. 
Don't buy into the doom and gloom prophets that only prophesy that it's getting worse. Don't cast off all hope for your neighbors or your country or your state. God is building. And he will not be stopped, whether it's in your backyard or a backyard on the other side of the earth. The gospel weed is growing, so have hope. Jesus reveals the permeation of his people, so don't fear. Look at verse 33. The gospel spreads. She spread it into the, spread the leaven and hid it until it was all leavened. The gospel spreads. It follows the third law of thermodynamics, entropy. It spreads until it can't spread anymore. Just as whatever you mix into something uh, that you're baking, if you're doing a halfway decent job, it gets spread throughout the entire mixture. Jesus is saying that through his work spreading the gospel, it's getting spread throughout the entire area. Such a spread only increased after the sending of the Holy Spirit and the persecutions which sent God's people flying to the hills or to Antioch. And so if God's message spreads and spreads throughout, we don't need to fear so much about a lockdown or a persecution uh, in one particular business or city or area or state or country. Certainly we grieve and we pray for our brothers and sisters in the Lord there, but the gospel isn't being stamped out. With each bound and swipe, the gospel is being spread instead of stopped. So don't fear. This can be personally very hard when you are being called to move, either from your job, your parents' job, or your spouse's job, or worse, due to poverty, persecution or refugee status. God sends hardship upon his people and the temptation can be to respond to God by crying out, why? Why me? Don't you love your people? For an answer to these questions, we should look to this parable. God is spreading out his message and his church don't fear. Jesus reveals the angel's role. So watch out. As Jesus explicitly explains the parable, the wheat and the weeds, he reveals a great mystery, angel's job. Angels are very mysterious in scripture. They're not talked about frequently, and we are not told about their rules, roles, and history. We're not even told when they're created. Culture, loosely based on scripture, has taught us that people have guardian angels. You know, a little. Uh, there are some guardian angels, Exodus 23, 20. But it's too much for for me to say that we all have one looking over our shoulder. But in this explanation, Jesus says explicitly what they do, and it's not polite. You wouldn't find this depiction of angels in the Hallmark store. Their angels are cute, diapered toddlers, but Jesus' angels look different. One of the angels' roles is to reap. Direct your attention to verse 41. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The angels are quite literally hell's angels, throwing people into a fiery furnace. And notice Jesus' role here. He's their director. They act or refrain at his command. So the guiding force behind their deadly work is gentle Jesus. See also how he reveals to you. He makes visible the invisible work of angels. Why? 
so that you can fear God and turn to Him, lest you be thrown into the fiery furnace by angels. Have any of you ever tried to wriggle free from an angel's clutches? How successful do you think you would be in protecting yourself from an angel intent on throwing you into hell? You don't want to test your hypothesis out. Look at verse 28. These hell's angels are ready now according to their role as reapers. They stand ready to rip us all up, to harvest all humankind. And the only thing holding them back is the word of their master, the Lord of angel armies, Jesus. So what's the application for us? If angels will be the ones throwing those outside of Christ into the fiery furnace? See, I used to think that this parable was a caution against church discipline, but that doesn't seem to be the case. The clear interprets the unclear. It's a hermeneutical rule. Paul is clear in 1 Corinthians 5.13 that, quote, God judges those outside, purge the evil person from among you. We should exercise church discipline. We should... We should not second-guess people who claim to be Christians and make a solid confession. We too, if we did that, would accidentally uproot believers. Angels could be guilty of that, and so God holds them back. So the application for us today is watch out. Watch out for these powerful, spiritual, heavenly angels who can throw us into the fiery furnace of judgment for our bodies and souls. Well, how do we watch out? When we can't even see or hear these angels, turn to the Lord with your whole heart. You may be able to take God's name in vain now. You may be able to fool some people into thinking that you're a Christian now. But there is no fooling the Lord Christ and His angelic reapers. So turn now, (coughs) repent now, bow to Christ now, ere it is too late. Jesus reveals the separation between the righteous and the wicked, so repent now. In this covenant age, one of the things that's very hard to determine is who are the righteous and who are the wicked. It would be more simple if the righteous came from one bloodline, lived in one place, dressed in one way, spoke one language, were highlighted with halos around their head. But it's not so. In the Old Covenant, it was a little more obvious. There were eating habits, clothing habits, geographical necessities that forced God's people to stand out. But now in the New Covenant, it's not so. We can worship God wherever if we worship in truth. God calls men and women from all nations to come and worship Him, and He does not force them to abide in ancient uh, Judaic dress customs, save that of covering over our nudity and each gender dressing according to his gender. But the righteous and the wicked walk alongside each other in our culture. Eating similarly, dressing similarly, talking similarly. So how can one tell the difference between the righteous and the wicked? The wicked sometimes act correctly. The righteous sometimes sin. Is there no point in living righteously if most can't distinguish good from evil? Well, the Lord Jesus makes visible visible the invisible distinction between righteous and wicked. At the end of the age, Jesus, through his angels, separates the righteous from the wicked. Who is righteous? Only those robed in the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness not their own, but bought for them through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. All those who do not trust in Jesus to forgive them of their sins, who would rather have what they deserve, these are the wicked. Not because they conceive of themselves as such, but because the Lord reckons anyone wicked who has not followed his whole law. The Christian has not followed the whole law either. 
But the Christian has a righteousness from above, an alien righteousness, the righteousness of Christ. Those in Christ and those outside of Christ will be separated. Their distinction will be revealed. There will be no more ambiguity, no more questions. On the last day, the Lord will draw the righteous to himself to be saved. The wicked, those stuck in their own sins, he will send to the eternal fire of judgment where smoke goes up forever and ever. The Lord Christ will make this clear. So repent now. Turn from your wicked ways. If you have not bowed the knee to Christ, flee to Him from the wrath to come, and you will not be able to fool Him with your resume when the time comes. So you either repented and turned to Him in sincerity in life, or you didn't. He knows, so do it now. If you've already turned to Christ and trust that the righteousness that fits you for heaven, you have from above. If you've already come, don't worry about separating out the true church from the false. Don't harass and second-guess and scorn those that confess Christ despite failures in their life. Paul says, What I want to do, I don't do, and what I do, I don't want to do. We don't need to kick such people out of our life, out of our fellowship. We should extend patient grace to them as the Lord does. We don't want to accidentally cut off and condemn to hell, at least in our minds, those that the Lord intends to save and make our brothers and sisters. That would be awkward and rude. Instead, let us wait patiently on the Lord to be the one to reveal the distinction from the righteous and wicked because He is the God who sees and reveals what we cannot. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are the invisible Lord of all life. Uh, we see that as you uh, tell us that through your parables. Uh, we see that the angels whom maybe we thought were just guardians or uh, just things that we'll meet in, in heaven one day. We see, Lord, you've revealed their role, that they are the ones who send uh, throw souls into hell. Um, we see that even though uh, this world uh, looks pagan and set against you, you're building your church, you're spreading it out. Uh, help us to trust you and take you at your word, uh, not only to turn to you, but to have courage and hope once we turn to you. I pray, Lord, that in all these things that we would see that you are the great and holy one, that uh, though you veil your message uh, in parables, though you veil your self-reference in the Son of Man, you are the mighty one to whom all authority on heaven and on earth is given. And we praise you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.